One, The Republic, written and narrated by Christopher Vale, theme song Lionheart by John Wright. Book available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. Chapter 5. Errand into the Wilderness King James departed this world on March 27, 1625, at the age of 58. He was succeeded by his son Charles I. King Charles was even more determined than his father to rid the realm of the nuisance called Puritanism. As Charles and the Church of England cracked down on the Puritans, tens of thousands followed their pilgrim brothers and sisters to America. In 1629, the Massachusetts Bay Company obtained a royal charter to colonize New England. Organized primarily by Puritans, the company was led by an idealistic Puritan lawyer named John Winthrop. Though Winthrop ultimately wanted to purify the Church of England, he and his fellow Puritans felt obligated to flee, justifying this as an errand into the wilderness to Christianize the natives and raise the bulk work against the kingdom of the Antichrist, which is how they characterized the Pope. Winthrop did not want any interference from the crown, the church, or even the company. If he and his fellow Puritans were to achieve their goals, they would need a good deal of autonomy. That meant self-government. Motivated to leave before the powers that be figured out what was really going on, Winthrop and his supporters had four ships filled with 400 passengers and sailed across the Atlantic within six months. They stole the colony's charter and hid it in Winthrop's baggage. The Puritans sailed to the Charles River and the passengers settled at various locations that had been previously cleared of trees. These included Boston, Charlestown, Newtown, later to be known as Cambridge, Watertown, Roxbury, and Dorchester. As at Plymouth, half of the colonists died that very first winter, mainly from starvation. That spring, many colonists returned to England, unable to put up with the raw and difficult conditions that carving out an entirely new country from scratch entailed. Meanwhile, in England, King Charles and William Laud, the Archbishop of Canterbury, continued to push for high Anglican uniformity. This forced more and more Puritans to flee to the New England colonies, easily replacing the colonists who had given up and returned home. In fact, the colony was growing at a rapid rate. To settle all of the new families, the colonists purchased land from the local tribes. This land was not stolen, but was bartered for and sold. 
the natives were happy to sell land to these people from across the sea because land was in abundance. Besides, each of the contracts for sale reserved for the Indians the right to hunt and fish the land. Sometimes they even reserved the right to plant crops on the land. There were rarely disputes over boundary lines because, as one colonist pointed out, the natives are very exact and punctual in the bounds of their lands. Winthrop called a general court in October of 1630 to establish a civil government. The laws were to be based on biblical standards. While Winthrop and the Puritans certainly believed in liberty, their idea of liberty was not what most envision it to be today. It certainly was not the liberty of vices, smut, or to do whatever made one happy. In fact, that would not be considered liberty at all, but rather slavery. Slavery not to men, but to sin. Instead, as Winthrop explained, the Puritans meant for the people to exercise a liberty to that which is good, just, and honest. The people would submit to the authority, and that authority would decide, based on their interpretation of biblical principles, what was in fact good, just, and honest. By late 1631, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was no longer a company, but a commonwealth. Adult male freeholders were allowed to vote if, and only if, they were in good standing with the church. However, there were no direct elections to the general court until Winthrop's authority had been so challenged that he was forced to produce the missing charter. To stop a general insurrection over his deception, Winthrop agreed to direct elections. Once elected, the general court fashioned rules and laws based on Puritan ideals. King Charles tried in vain to stop the colonists from turning New England into a Puritan colony. But by 1642, he was too busy fighting a civil war against his own parliament to worry about America. The English Civil War, which pitted the parliamentarians against the royalists over control of the government, resulted in the trial and execution of Charles I for treason in 1649. The war finally ended at the Battle of Worcester in September of 1651, when Charles II, son of Charles I, was defeated by Oliver Cromwell. Charles II fled to France and the Parliament established the Commonwealth of England. The Commonwealth lasted until 1653, when Oliver Cromwell transformed it into the Protectorate, with himself as dictator, under the title of Lord Protector. Not only did the monarchy lose power, but the Church of England lost its monopoly over religion in the realm. The purge of the Puritans ceased, and consequently, so did the Puritan migration to New England. Before we continue, I wanted to pause and take a moment to thank you for listening to this podcast. I realize that you have a lot of options to occupy your time, and I'm truly grateful and humbled that you chose Home of the Brave. As you can imagine, it has taken a lot of time, energy, and money to create a podcast such as this, and I really need your support. Please share it with your friends, subscribe, and write a review. Also, I'd like to ask you to purchase the ebook that this podcast is based on. You can find Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic by Christopher Vale, that's V-A-L-E, at Amazon.com or on my website at ChristopherVale.net. I have 
two more books that I hope to write and record as podcasts to tell the story of America up through the end of the Cold War. But I won't be able to do so without your generous support. Thank you again. And now, back to Home of the Brave. Oliver Cromwell died in 1658, and by 1660, Britain had returned to a monarchy, with Charles II reclaiming the throne and the Church of England regaining its authority. By 1665, England was at war with the Dutch, and Charles II was searching for allies. In 1670, he promised to eventually convert to Catholicism if King Louis of France would aid England. By the late 1670s, the country was gripped with anti-Catholic fears as conspiracy theories of a popish plot spread throughout Britain. This fear fueled many anti-Catholics to migrate to the New World. One of those was Josiah Franklin, who took his young wife Anne and their three children to New England in 1683. Not only did Josiah believe that Charles II was turning the country popish, but he further believed that it was unsafe to voice his dissent because he felt that he could not, in good conscience, keep his mouth shut. He and his young family sailed for Boston. Tragically, Anne died a few years later during childbirth. Josiah remarried Abia, a young woman ten years his junior, whose father had come over with the first wave of Puritan refugees in 1635. In 1705, Abia gave birth to a baby boy they named Benjamin, after his father's brother. Benjamin Franklin, his parents' youngest son, was the eighth child born to his mother and the fifteenth child born to his father. By this time, Boston had become a large colonial port with an impressive ship manufacturing base. Benjamin's oldest brother, his father's namesake Josiah, had run off as a cabin boy with one of the ships when he was a very young man, and Ben often fantasized of doing the same. He loved the sea and dreamed of the many great adventures he might have while living aboard a ship. His father had other plans for him, however. While Benjamin's older brothers were apprenticed in different trades, Josiah was a chandler, and he wanted his youngest son to follow in his footsteps. So, at the tender age of 10, Benjamin was pulled out of school to assist in the candle shop. Benjamin detested the idea of working as a chandler feeling more inclined for the open sea, and often hinted to his parents that he would run off with a ship. At 12, he was old enough to be taken on as a cabin boy, and Josiah was terrified that Benjamin, like his older brother, would make good on his threat. Thus, Josiah agreed to allow Benjamin to seek apprenticeship in another industry besides candle making. James Franklin, another older brother of Benjamin's, had recently returned from England where he had apprenticed at a print shop. Upon his return to Boston, he had opened his own print shop and agreed to take his youngest brother on as an apprentice. Benjamin soon found that he had a knack for the printing trade. We normally think of Ben Franklin as the elder statesman of the Continental Congress and Constitutional Convention. A balding, spectacled, round man carried on a sedan because he could not walk the distance from his house to Independence Hall. But when Franklin was young, he was really quite strong. The broad shoulders and strong muscles he inherited from his father and built up swimming were a great asset in working the heavy printing press and slinging the lead type. 
Benjamin also enjoyed the mental aspects of the print shop. He had always loved to read, and work at a print shop gave him even greater access to material. After a while, Benjamin decided to try his hand at writing. He started with a story titled The Lighthouse Tragedy, a sad telling of the real-life drowning of the lighthouse keeper, his wife and daughter, a friend and a slave. James was impressed with the story and agreed to print it. Much to the delight of both brothers, the story sold well. Emboldened by the success of his first story, Benjamin decided to try his hand at verse, composing a poem about the recent death of the infamous pirate Blackbeard. Will you hear a bloody battle lately fought upon the seas? It will make your ears rattle and your admiration cease. Have you heard of Teach the Rover and his knavery on the main? How of gold he was a lover, how he loved all ill-got gains. The poem went on for several more stanzas, but concluded with the following. Teach and Maynard on the quarter fought it out most manfully. Maynard's sword did cut him shorter. Losing his head, he there did die. James had a contract, printing one of the local newspapers. But when the contract expired, he decided not to renew it, as he wanted to print a newspaper of his own. In his first issue of The New England Courant, James boldly took a shot at famed Puritan minister Cotton Mather. The colony had broken out in smallpox, and Mather advocated the newly developed technique of inoculation against the disease. James did not know if inoculation was good or bad, but he despised Mather, and thus anything Mather was for, James was against. James and his cohorts wrote under pseudonyms, to give the illusion that they had more support than they actually did. When he was 16 years old, Benjamin wrote a piece under the name Silence Do Good. However, he hid the fact that he was the author from his brother, slipping it anonymously under the door of the print shop. James was delighted and impressed with the letter from Silence. An early advocate of girls' education, Benjamin made Silence a woman, educated in literature, writing, and arithmetic. Ben wrote so well that James and his friends suspected the letter had come from one of the respected and learned men of Boston. James next focused his ire on the failures of the colonial government by making fun of their seeming unwillingness or inability to stop pirates who had been terrorizing the colony. The government officials finally had enough, and when James refused to reveal the author of the hit piece, he was arrested and thrown into jail. Benjamin was also arrested, but was released from custody even though he had also refused to reveal the author, because the authorities believed the apprentice was legally bound to keep his master's secrets. This gave control over the paper to Benjamin, who quickly began publishing articles attacking the assault on freedom of the press. James was eventually released from prison with the promise not to do it again. That didn't last long as James went right back on the attack, and soon there was a warrant issued for his arrest. He was forced into hiding, once again leaving Benjamin in charge of the print shop. This time, though, to keep the authorities from arresting Benjamin as well, he publicly discharged Ben's apprenticeship. Privately, however, he made Ben sign a new contract. Benjamin was much more adept at attacking the powers that be through wit instead of direct assaults. For example, he made fun of their obsession with titles, writing, Adam was never called Master Adam. We never read of Noah Esquire. 
Lot, Knight and Baronet, nor Right Honorable Abraham, Viscount Mesopotamia, Baron of Karen. We never read of the Reverend Moses, nor the Right Reverend Father in God Aaron by divine providence, Lord Archbishop of Israel. Benjamin, tired of secretly working for his brother, who would often beat him during their many arguments, and a few months before his 18th birthday, decided to leave. He knew James would prevent him from getting work at a print shop in Boston, and decided to go to New York City instead. He sneaked away in the night, paying off a ship's captain and telling him he had to run, because he had gotten a naughty girl pregnant with child. Unfortunately, Benjamin could not find print work in New York. One of the printers suggested he try his luck in Philadelphia, and Benjamin set out for Pennsylvania. On the way, they encountered a squall, which tore up the sails and pushed the ship into Long Island. The small vessel could not make land due to the rough surf and rocky beach, and they were forced to wait out the squall at anchor offshore. When the wind died down, they finally reached the shore, and Ben traversed the next 50 miles to Burlington, New Jersey, on foot. In Burlington, he found passage to Philadelphia. Though at the time, he would likely have denied it, perhaps Providence was smiling on him. As Benjamin walked through the streets of Philadelphia, up from the wharf, dirty, stinky, and soaking wet, his eyes met those of a pretty young girl who stood staring at him. Realizing that he must make the most awkward, ridiculous appearance, he hurried away without speaking to her but he could not help but think of how beautiful she was. Franklin found work at one of the two print shops in town and found lodging at the house of a carpenter named John Reed. When he presented himself at the Reed's house, he met the man's daughter, Deborah Reed, and was embarrassed to realize it was the same young woman he had seen when he first arrived. Luckily, he had cleaned himself up by this time and it was not long before the two were courting. Benjamin was excellent at the print business in Philadelphia, just as he had been at his brother's shop. It did not take long before he had attracted the attention of the colonial governor, William Keith. Keith wanted to meet the young man and found him at the print shop. After some discussion, Keith determined that Franklin should open his own shop. Keith convinced the boy to seek a loan from his father to open his own printing business. Thus, with a letter to Josiah from the governor of Pennsylvania, Franklin returned to Boston. Everyone was impressed with Benjamin's success in Philadelphia. Well, everyone except James. While Josiah was very proud that his youngest boy had made good in the city of brotherly love and had caught the eye of none less than the royal governor himself, he would not agree to loan Benjamin the money. Josiah appreciated Governor Keith's interest in his son but thought it foolish to entrust one so young with such a large sum. After returning to Philadelphia and explaining this to Keith, the governor decided to back the young man himself and invest in a new print shop. He convinced Franklin to travel to London to pick out the equipment. He could use Keith's line of credit to pay for it. Franklin told Deborah of his plans to sell to England and then asked her to marry him. Deborah, however, was a wise young woman. She told him, that they should wait until he returned to see if their relationship could survive the distance. This was a very smart decision, as Franklin himself admitted while in England he engaged in foolish intrigues with low women. Franklin set out for England 
but soon discovered that Governor Keith had misled him. It was not intentional. But as it was explained to Franklin, Keith was often excited with new ideas, but eventually the reality set in. In truth, Franklin discovered, he could not charge the cost of printing equipment to Keith, because Keith had no credit to give. Still, living in England was a wonderful and educational experience for Franklin. He found a job at a print shop, which, in a city like London, with so many, was very easy to do. Once again, he impressed his employers both with his physical abilities with the press and his writing skills. While in London, Franklin's circle of friends were high-minded intellectuals, which is not surprising given his own genius. He even abandoned his engagement to Deborah. It was while in England that he wrote his Dissertation on Liberty and Necessity, a deist view that seemed to many almost atheistic with a rejection of the existence of evil. Franklin would one day come to discard the deism of his youth to re-embrace his Christian upbringing, calling deism a perversion and blaming it for the abandonment of his engagement to Deborah and his consorting with women of the night. As a young man, however, experimenting in new thought and philosophy, the trendy deism, with its lack of moral demands, was quite appealing. In 1726, Franklin returned to Philadelphia and found work with Thomas Denham, a shopkeeper whom he had met on the journey across the Atlantic. Deborah Reed had married another man while Franklin was in London, but the man had run off and after a number of years, she believed him dead. Franklin resumed his courtship of Deborah and they married in 1730. However, Franklin had a child born of another woman just after his wedding to Deborah. Franklin determined to raise young William, and to this day, no one knows who the child's mother is. Finally, after many years, Franklin began his own newspaper, the Pennsylvania Gazette, and it was a smashing success, growing into the leading paper in the colonies. Franklin soon began publishing his most famous publication, Poor Richard's Almanac. In 1736, Franklin founded Philadelphia's first fire club, the Union Fire Company to fight fires in the city. That same year, he became a clerk in the Pennsylvania Assembly, giving him a first-hand view of Pennsylvania politics. The following year, he received the position of postmaster. It soon became evident that Franklin was stretching himself too thin. Subsequently, he hired David Hall as a foreman to run his print shop. Hall was excellent, perhaps as good as Franklin himself, and in 1748, Franklin made Hall his partner. With Hall running the print shop and Franklin's son, William, handling the duties of the postmaster, Franklin had more time on his hands. He decided to try his hand at politics, and in 1751, he ran for and was elected to the Pennsylvania Assembly, representing Philadelphia. One of Franklin's motivations to run for a seat on the Assembly was that a few years prior, the New England colonies had been engaged in a fight with French Canadians. The small war included a raid by 300 French Canadians and 200 Indians into Saratoga, New York, killing 30 people, burning the town, and carrying off between 50 and 100 captives. Franklin had strongly urged Pennsylvania to send troops to assist their English brothers up north. But to his dismay, the assembly refused. Franklin's son did not. William volunteered for the Canada expedition 
as Benjamin touted the idea of colonial defense from his printing house. This small war was one of the preludes to a fight that was bound to come eventually between the French and English in North America and would come a decade later in the French and Indian War. Thank you for listening to Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic. For notes and citations, or to support this podcast, please purchase the ebook available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com.